chapter 22, reading verses 23 to 33. Uh, So hear the word of the Lord here in this selection from the gospel according to Matthew. The same day, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Uh, The Christian faith is a supernatural faith uh, in light of the power of God who does uh, supernatural things. In my own mind, the chief expression of the supernaturalness of the Christian faith is in the resurrection. And the resurrection is a two-phased event. If you're a Christian, phase one has already occurred. And so you hope in a righteous hope for phase two to quickly come, as it certainly will. But not unlike every endeavor of life, there are the opponents of Jesus who are sons of the natural. And it's what the Sadducees represent. We're a party of Judaism, within Judaism, that denied the resurrection, and they also denied that other than the Torah, that the rest of the Bible was uh, the authoritative, inspired Word of God. So they come to try their hand at uh, debunking Jesus. Uh, It's kind of a long line. Uh, They're near the last in line, but they come to uh, overthrow his arguments, and they think they have a good hand. Again, they held to the authority of the Pentateuch and denied the resurrection. If you will, they were the naturalists of their day that held only to the present life. You and I would call call them pagans, but nonetheless, they're within the covenant community, the visible covenant community of our Lord's day. Let me give you another illustration of uh, the natural man. The Bible is literature. Of course, it is literature, but behind... Uh, The human author is the divine author who inspires the Word and who provides the testimony of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the Word. 
as literature, just simply what the natural man sees that the Bible is, but you and I are the sons of supernatural, so uh, we see behind the human authors the divine, more importantly, the presence of the Holy Spirit bearing witness of the Word. Nonetheless, in verses 23 to 28, Jesus will vanquish uh, his foes and the Sadducees and affirm our every hope in the resurrection, verses 29 to 33. I might add, in terms of application, I've been studying a long line of men who come to argue with Christ and to expose him as being false. Uh, each of them uh, have failed. The Sadducees will fail. The lawyer to come will fail because Christ will vanquish every foe. None will stand. They will all be defeated. And he will vanquish, of course, the last foe, death itself, because of who he is, the Lord of life. So they come, the Sadducees, with a trick question fashioned from the law of leveret marriage in the Old Testament. And there's lots of trick questions. But nonetheless, this is an illustration of one of them. A man dies, leaving his wife as a widow under the leveret law of the Old Testament. It was really quite common, uh, Old Testament, uh, ancient Near Eastern times. His brothers were to step in to raise up a progeny to secure the man's name, the family inheritance, and of course to provide security for his wife. Deuteronomy 22, 25, pardon me, verse 5. And they repeat this scenario seven times. And then they pop the question, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? It's an argument, of course, presuming the absurdity of the resurrection, because they denied it. And, of course, it's an interesting argument from these men, because there is no explicit text in the Torah on the resurrection. Nevertheless, Jesus will use the Torah to answer them, and he rejects their premise. What we will learn, of course, is that every word of the Scriptures, whether it be Torah or the writings of the prophets uh, or the history or the letters of the apostles, every word points to the reality that God is life and he gives life to his sons because we are the sons of the supernatural. And so in verses 29 to 33, Jesus will affirm the resurrection. I simply remind you that the universe is an open system in which God may sovereignly intrude any time he so wills, and so this will constitute the answer of our Lord. Jesus says, verse 29, you're mistaken. It's really a much stronger word in the Greek text. The more accurate idea is to wander or to lead astray. In other words, these men have been deceived. Now, I remind you that they represent a measure of the covenant community as Sadducees, but they're deceived. Much of religion, of course, is deceived today. The cause of their error is that they do not know Scripture and they do not know the power of God. And both errors are fatal. If you reject the Scripture or any part of the Scripture or you reject the power of God, you're simply a son of the natural Another way to describe that is rank paganism. It's remarkable that these people came out of the covenant community, but that's not unlike many within the Christian church today. There's always a strong and powerful movement to debunk the Scripture as the inspired word of the living God. 
The first Adam is simply a mythical story. The Bible is simply a fairy tale. Again, uh, we find all of this alive and well in the Christian church as a testimony that the Sadducees remain present within us. I would simply remind you that that's just simply the way of life in the Christian church. There's great movements that come along like uh, the Sadducees. They're debunked, but nonetheless, their error persists in many cases, sadly as the case may be, prevails. I simply remind you one of the great arguments in the Christian church was between Augustine and Pelagius. Augustine won the argument, but semi-Pelagianism is rife in the American church today. And on and on the story goes. Luther resoundingly defeats Erasmus. But I'm not so sure Erasmus isn't alive in the Christian church and Luther dead. Save the sons of the supernatural. Again, you know not the scripture or the power of God. The immediate answer, of course, is there's no, there's no marriage in heaven. Marriage is a human institution established by God for procreation and to perfect love between husband and wife. Heaven needs neither. There's no procreation in heaven, and love is perfected in heaven. But the greater answer that Jesus gives to the Sadducees is from the Torah as the Word of God. So he's going to use their belief system against them. And Jesus will cite Exodus 3.6 and verses 15 to 16, again, of the third chapter of the book of Exodus. It's a theological use of the Old Testament to establish a timeless truth that God is alive and that his sons are alive. Uh, the context, as you know, is the call and commission of Moses. Moses is wandering about in the wilderness and he sees a miraculous event, a burning bush that is not extinguished. In and of itself, it's a reminder to us that you and I are the sons of the supernatural. Uh, the bush continues uh, to burn because God is in its midst and the ground is holy. God is now manifesting the divine presence uh, to what will be the deliverer of Israel in the Old Testament. What I remind you of in this event, of course, is that God initiates the encounter. And that in and of itself is a miracle. If you are a Christian, God initiated the encounter with you because you were totally unable and unwilling. Exodus chapter 3 and the 6th verse I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. It is a covenant reminder of God's promise to the patriarchs that God made a covenant with them. And every covenant, of course, in the Old Testament is a mere expression of the eternal covenant that God makes with his redeemed people. And if the earthly covenants are but a shadow of the eternal covenant of redemption, it means that the patriarchs are yet alive because God is a living God who makes an eternal covenant with his sons. And because God exists, they exist. He is their God and they are his sons. 
the Lucan account of, uh, of this event in Matthew chapter 22 has much more profound language in my estimation. Jesus says that they are the sons of God and the sons of the resurrection. It is a logical extension of divine life. All who are the sons of God are alive. All who are not the sons of God are dead. They choose death, and that's what they will get, death. Psalm 49 puts it in a very graphic way. I simply remind you of the word of God and the power of God if you're not a Christian. Psalm 49 says, death will shepherd them and feed upon them. It's a graphic metaphor of what it means to reject God who is alive. It is to embrace death. Of course, there are in the Old Testament other texts that speak to life after death. Uh, Jesus makes an argument from the Torah, but think of the words of Job, chapter 19, verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will take his stand upon the earth. Christ is alive. The sons of God live. One of my favorite verses from the Psalms Psalm 73, as a man caught in a deep struggle as he looks upon the prosperity of the wicked, it almost overthrows his faith. But he goes to church and he hears a sermon and he's caught from slipping. And one of the great confessions of the text from the 73rd Psalm, it's the 24th verse, with thy counsel thou wilt guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. Great reminder of the two parts of life, that as a son of the covenant, God leads us and guides us through all of the pathways of life and the path of righteousness. And afterwards, he will receive us to glory. In the end, glory will get us. Glory will not forsake us. Glory will not turn its back upon us. After life, we will be received into glory. And all that that means. It is the hope of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the sons of the supernatural. Because that is what we are, the product of a supernatural God. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live and the corpses will rise. The resurrection is, is a present event as well as a future, but so is death. I think that's the point of the 49th Psalm, that death will shepherd them. You and I have a different shepherd. There are not many shepherds in life. There are but two, death and Christ. Something of an illustration of this amount of life, I experienced a, a couple anniversaries back. My wife and I took a trip south along I-35 to visit a hotel that had been renovated by one of the Indian tribes. And sadly, as the case may be, with respect to many of the Indian tribes, there was a casino uh, in the hotel. It's not why I went there, but nonetheless, once I was there, I had to go there. Okay, darling, let's go to the fifth floor and see what this is all about. Walking in the door, it is almost as if momentarily I stepped from life to death. It was dark. 
Uh, cigarette smoke was everywhere. And these automatons were simply pulling on levers. It was the eeriest experience I think I've ever had in a casino. And I, probably the second time in my life I've ever been in a casino. It's as, as if everyone in that room was transfixed by a false god and a false hope. Have you ever seen the uh, advertisements on television for casinos? Or maybe in the magazines or some bulletin board, you go down South I-35. Man, it's just pure excitement, isn't it? Love and joy and happiness and celebration. When I walked in that door, I knew in a moment that it was all a lie. And that is what the world spins as the natural man. It is all a lie. They spin tales that will never happen, never occur. Those lives were broken and they knew not what held them, that death was their shepherd. It's really what is holding the Sadducees and much of a false religion. Death has come, but Christ has come and will not hold the Christian. And so now I'd like to look at some different texts that speak uh, to the majesty of the fact that you and I are the sons of the resurrection, the sons of the new birth, are the sons of the supernatural power of God. The scripture promises the resurrection and God will deliver. And the immediate proof of his deliverance is that phase one of the resurrection has already occurred. Let's turn in the Gospel of John to the fifth chapter. John chapter 5, the 25th verse. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming. He's speaking of a future event, is he not? But notice what Christ does. He jerks it into the present and now is. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. Well, the language, of course, is of the resurrection, is it not? The dead will hear and live. And so the resurrection has begun. It's already started in the sons of God. They hear the word of God and they live by the power of the word of God. The Holy Spirit that uses the word of God to grant life and faith and hope. Verse 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear His voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So we have the present resurrection, John chapter 5, verse 25, and the future resurrection, verses 28 and 29. What is remarkable about this text is that it is an illusion to one of the greatest of the Old Testament texts that speaks to the resurrection. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2. Many of the texts in the Scriptures are implicit with respect to the resurrection, but this one is explicit. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. A great reference, I think, to the doctrine of sovereign election, that God will rescue his people. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace 
and everlasting contempt. The uh, New American Standard uh, uses the phrase at that time, but the Septuagint, of which I believe John is quoting, uses the word hour. And it means that the resurrection spoken of in John 5 is an initial fulfillment of the resurrection promised in Daniel chapter 12. Again, it's a remarkable event, and only the Lord can do this, or the writers of Scripture can do this, but they take a future event of the resurrection, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, and they make it a present reality in the life of the church for every believer, that the hour has come in which the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they will live. I understand that to me that the resurrection is a two-phased event. Phase one is when you exercise faith in Jesus Christ, your dead spirit is resurrected and made alive. In a technical sense, it's wrong for us to say that the resurrection is our hope. I mean, it is, of course, it's our hope. But we don't speak of a present reality as a hope. It's an accomplished event. And so phase one of the resurrection is an accomplished event. We are the sons of the resurrection. It's already occurred in part in our hearts when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. The power of God has already broken upon us. We're the sons of the new birth, the sons of power, the sons of supernatural power. I would say that that ought to encourage you at every waking moment of every day in which you live, that the power of God has visited you and made you alive. One of the greatest uh, texts, of course, that uh, uh, speaks to the inauguration of the end-time resurrection and that phase one is a spiritual resurrection of the dead is Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 4 to 6. I encourage you to turn there in your New Testament. Uh, let's look at the language because it speaks to a resurrection. Verses 1 to 3, of course, is the Apostle Paul ransacking theology and history of the fact that we are dead and lost, totally unable and totally depraved before a righteous and holy God. We had no hope in the world whatsoever. We were the sons of death. And so Paul says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sin. That all of us, as the sons of the first Adam, were born spiritually dead. We had no hope whatsoever. Save God intervened, and that's exactly what God did. He intervened in your life. And the great change occurs at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, Notice the verb, made us alive. That's the resurrection. You were dead and he made you alive. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is phase one of the end time resurrection prophesied in all of the Old Testament and the New as well. It's already started. It's begun. We're not sitting around as mere children of hope waiting for something to happen. It already has happened. 
You came to faith in Jesus Christ. He raised you up with Him, seated you with Him in the heavenly places. That our hope is realized now. But what about the future? What about the future? The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 14, that the Spirit of God who has invaded our hearts is the down payment that will get the full-blown reality of the resurrection in the age to come. And that nothing can stop it. And that the Spirit is a down payment as a member of the Trinity. It cannot be undone. We possess the reality of phase one of the resurrection and the Spirit of God is the down payment. If you will, we wear the engagement ring that we belong to the living God and He will come again and receive us unto Himself and consummate the resurrection the end of the age. Let me give you a temporal metaphor. I've always been in love with trains. I used to work for a train company, the Santa Fe. I used to love jumping on trains. You come to Christ, you're on the greatest train that's ever left the worst station that could ever exist, the world in which we live. And that train is moving. And the end cannot be stopped. We will come into our eternal home by the power of God. He made us alive and raised us up and seated us with Him in the heavenly places and gave us the Holy Spirit as the down payment that we will own our eternal home in the fullness of the resurrection. But the first resurrection, as I'm suggesting, seals us for the final resurrection. It's exactly the theology of the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 20 in the sixth verse. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. When you come to Christ, you've engaged the power of the first resurrection, and the second death cannot get at you. Try as it may, bear its teeth as it may, roar as it may, it cannot and will not get at you because of the power of God. The down payment, of course, is the seal of that. Hidden in our hearts, we know that we are safe. It's really one of the great tragedies of American Christianity because by and large semi-Pelagianism says that we can come to Christ and then fall away. It's kind of like we graduate and walking across the stage, uh, the dean of the college uh, says, good luck, I hope you make it. We don't get good luck, we get the power of God. And because I believe in the power of God, I don't believe in luck. There's no such thing as luck. There's physics, there's natural law. And God controls it all and sets it all in motion. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ by divine power, our eternal end is secured forever and everything is set in motion. The sons of the new birth, the sons of the supernatural. Perhaps one of the clearest texts in all of the Bible is uh, not the only, but one of the clearest that I find my own present hope of the future resurrection, but as well as the present resurrection, uh, John chapter 11. 
just clear a biblical statement of the power of God in phase two of the resurrection, but it's also a reminder of phase one of the resurrection. John chapter 11 follows the seventh discourse of Christ as the good shepherd. Death may shepherd the lost. Christ shepherds us as the sons of the new birth. And he does not leave us to wander self-directed. That's the follow of folly of so much of bad theology today. He doesn't say, good luck, I hope you make it. He says, I am your good shepherd. I will lead you in the paths of righteousness for my own name's sake. And goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is the theology that now floods John chapter 11 that follows the discourse of Christ as the good shepherd. By the way, if you're not a Christian, I've told you who shepherds your soul. I've told you who feeds upon your soul. There's only one way out, and that is Christ is the only shepherd beyond the grave. At the grave, every shepherd, save him, has to turn back. He doesn't have to because he's conquered the grave. A good friend of our Lord has died. His name was Lazarus. When his sister sees Jesus, she expresses her sadness at the loss of her brother. And you recall, you recall the encounter that Jesus tarried a little while, almost as to uh, set in motion the events for the death of Lazarus. Good and dead, good and buried, if you will. And then he comes and uh, Martha is sad that he wasn't there, as if Christ is beholden to time, as if Christ lost the shot, could never be recovered. Sometimes we think that way as Christians, you know, woe is me, I'm undone. You need to be reminded of the power of God, scriptures. Christ answers her, John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Again, verse is the prelude to the seventh messianic sign and the resurrection of Lazarus. I am is an allusion to the commissioning of Moses. Jesus, therefore, is equating himself for the God who met Moses in the wilderness in the burning bush. The Greek is related to the Hebrew name Yahweh, the covenantal and redemptive name for God. My point is, is as Jesus delivered the nation of Israel, he's going to deliver us from death. He says he's the resurrection and the life. It's our greatest hope. But the hope has already begun in the new birth yet to be fully realized, a hope to be sure, a hope that will not disappoint. To live again and to come back from the grave, to beat it, Jesus did, and all who are in him will too as well. The one believing in me, it's one of the greatest invitations ever delivered by the Good Shepherd. 
the importance of believing in Christ, the conviction that His Word is true, the knowledge that Christ is who He says He is, and then the reliance upon Christ to do what He promised to do and to be what He is, to make us alive in the new birth and in phase two of the resurrection. Shall live the greatest promise All of science, all of literature, everyone wants to understand the ultimate question, why is there death? We know why. The fall of Adam. And the only answer, of course, is the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The greatest promise is that our bodies will yet live. I would simply remind you that there is no chance no maybes to the promise of God. Though he dies, the greatest deliverance. What seals it, of course, is the 26th verse of this great discourse. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The Greek text is much more emphatic. Literally, it's no, shall no, not die forever. I know the double negative is great upon your ears, but the Greek text, a double negative is written for emphatic negation. It's, it's incredibly loud emphasis. Will absolutely not die. Whoever believes in him will not die. It is an affirmation that death will not hold us. And then Jesus proves it. He advances to the tomb of Lazarus. I love the words of Benjamin Warfield. He goes to the tomb like an athlete to the contest. He is incensed because of what sin has done to his good friend. But he is the Lord of life, and he commands, and Lazarus comes forth. It's really a picture of the new birth in many respects. Christ stood before your dead grave-wrapped heart and said, let there be light. And there was, and you came to faith. Lazarus didn't argue, he was dead. Lazarus didn't dispute the call. Hey, wait a minute, Lord, I've got to fix my, my grave clothes. Got to, got to arrange a few things here in the tomb. That, that's folly and silliness. The reality is that Christ must simply do one thing to overcome death, and that is command. And he does, and Lazarus comes forth from the tomb. It's as if when he stood before your dead heart and commanded you to come to life, and you came to life, there was no argumentation because he made your will willing in the day of his power. You believed, and even that belief was the sign of the fullness of the power of God in the first resurrection, that we already are on the train, destined for eternal glory. I love the psalmist, and afterwards will receive me unto glory. You find yourself discouraged. You find yourself on the other end of a bad argument, or perhaps some difficult people. Never forget that verse, and afterwards he will receive you unto glory. You know what follows that verse? Whom have I in heaven but thee? Besides thee, I desire nothing upon the earth. If 
you know the power of God in the resurrections, what is else is there to chase or to lust after or to hope in? We have it all. And it's already begun in the new birth. No, not die forever. Lazarus comes forth. Jesus promises, he delivers. John gives us something of this in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Christ is the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. If he's the firstborn, there will be many born. And if he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, death cannot stop him at getting at you if you know him by personal faith and believing in him for the forgiveness of your sin and guilt. The firstborn of the dead the first fruits of the great resurrection, meaning that the greater harvest is yet, but it's already begun by faith in Christ. It's absolute guarantee as the firstborn of the dead that there's more to come. Again, I'm simply telling you that if you're not a Christian, uh, you must experience a new birth. And the only way to get out of this uh, world alive and to live forever is through Christ. It's the ruler of the kings of the earth and ruler, of course, of every spiritual power, even death itself. Our Lord can command the grave and the grave must obey in light of who he is as the Lord of life. Well, our great hope, of course, is that God resurrects us spiritually. That's already occurred. Hope is stamped all over us and within us because we're the sons of the new birth. We also have the hope of the resurrection of the body. The great picture, John chapter 11, but it's everywhere in Scripture. It's interesting to me that the Sadducees come with a story about marriage. Even that institution in and of itself declared in the Scriptures. It's a promise of eternal life. Why? Because Christ is the great bridegroom and the church is the bride. And the marriage feast of the Lamb has yet occurred. But the meal has already started. We're going to celebrate it momentarily here this morning in the sacrament of the Lord's table. You see, the promises are future, but they're already as well. The marriage feast of the Lamb, the great event of the celebration, will go on time without end. I love those uh, Middle Eastern marriages that would last sometimes for days, Prophet Isaiah says the wine will flow, the food will be the greatest, all of it, of course, high metaphor for the greatest celebration of all time. But for us, it's already started as the sons of the new birth. This morning, we're going to celebrate a measure in a picture of a visible event of the marriage feast of the Lamb in the sacrament of the Lord's table. Because we are the sons of the supernatural. Our supernatural Savior comes as the host of the table. Because he knows that we are hungry and he knows that we are thirsty. And he comes to meet us at our every point in need to remind us that we are his sons. And that he is leading us and will lead us beyond the grave and receive us unto glory.